Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Um, maybe better said good grief morning. There's, um, there's nowhere else to begin this morning than on our knees bowed in grief, anguishing, anguishing with the moms and dads, the grandmas and the grandpas, the teachers, the friends, the aunts, the uncles of the 19 children massacred yesterday at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Their lives um, cut short, seven, eight, nine-year-old children. Their lives cut short by an 18-year-old student from the local high school. Prior to his assault on the elementary school, um, he shot and killed his grandmother with whom he lived. The slaughter ended when a responding officer entered the school and uh, shot the perpetrator We do know the name of one of the victims who has been identified by her father, um, and we do know the name of one of the teachers killed. So 10-year-old Amory Joe Garza and uh, a teacher, Eva Morales, who have been um, identified by their loved ones. Uvalde's a little town, you guys. Um, Uvalde's a little town, Um, Less than 16,000 people live there, 80% of them uh, Latino. Rob Elementary School is like 500 kids in the second, third, and fourth grades. 90% of the students in the school are Hispanic. This is a, um, this is a community that's been uh, around for a long time. It's about 80, 85 miles west of San Antonio. Um, it's, a, it's a community that um, is very tight-knit. It's generational. 40% of the people um, in Uvalde have lived in the same house for more than 30 years. It's a real town with tight connections. There's like one of every variety of church in town. So there's, you know, there's one Catholic church. There's one um, Methodist church. There's one Presbyterian church. There's one, um, you know, there's just like one church of each kind. It's not a town that's big enough to support a lot of churches, but pretty much everybody in Uvalde goes to church. It's a real town. Tight connections. Everyone in Uvalde is going to be personally touched and deeply affected by what is happening there. And when I try to um, get my mind around this event and events like this, the biblical story that comes to mind is the slaughter of the innocents. And so this slaughter of innocents in Uvalde, Texas, is not unlike what took place in Newtown, Connecticut in December of 2012. It's also not unlike what took place in a little tight-knit community called Bethlehem 
before time was marked in years based on the birth of a baby named Jesus. So I don't have a a time marker to give you on the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. Other than to say, we now mark time based on the birth of the baby about whom that slaughter was carried out. I just want to allow grief to rise today. Let yourself feel the pain. And yes, seek out your own children, your own grandchildren, not only to hold them close, but to talk with them and go further than that. I want you to think right now about that single grandmother who is raising a 15, 16, 17-year-old grandson alone in her home. We do not know all the circumstances of the life of the Ramos family. But we know that whatever the circumstances of this young man's life on his 18th birthday, he spent the day and he spent the money that he had earned working at Wendy's to buy weapons that he used yesterday to kill at least three adults and at least 19 innocent children, wounding many others and scarring a community forever. Some days, in some moments, in the face of some realities, it's okay that words fail. It's okay to sit in radio silence. As words fail, we allow tears to flow and prayers to arise and questions to be asked, and we sit with the questions, recognizing that in the face of evil, We have but one answer. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. So I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the morning following a massacre of innocents in Uvalde, Texas. And it's not just a handful of families that are in deepest grief today. Um, because on days like this, in addition to the families most critically and directly affected, every family who's ever been affected um, by such an event in any place over all of time relives the trauma. And the waiting of those parents for hours in that civic center yesterday, um, that waiting is waiting I I have a hard time imagining that I would have been able to sit there and wait. Um, So let me confess that. I would have been civilly disobedient, I feel confident, seeking to um, find my child. Hundreds of families are in deepest grief today. 
yes, leading that awful list are the families of the 19 children whose lives have been taken. But there's also families of at least three children in critical condition. And there are the families of the two adults at the school and the family of the shooter and his grandmother and the families of the law enforcement officers and first responders and the families, the extended families of each and every one of these people and the families of every child that couldn't sleep last night because of the trauma that they experienced and witnessed yesterday. Like, like, like how, how do those churches go on planning VBS for the summer in Uvalde? And, and how do you get up today and go on with your day? That is a real question. I anticipated leading today with news out of uh, Davos, Switzerland, where the World Economic Forum is gathered. I anticipated leading off today with prayers for the people of Ukraine, where now more than 20,000 people, men, women and children, uh, are accounted for in the wreckage of apartment buildings and other uh, buildings leveled by the Russians in in the city of Mariupol. Um, But those thousands are overshadowed by the nearness, the nearness of what's happening in Uvalde, Texas, a place that I feel pretty confident most most of us have never heard of before yesterday. Second, third and fourth graders at an elementary school in the United States of America. So, yeah, there's a war in Ukraine, but there's a different kind of war, no less deadly, right here. So, my guess is you've already heard the pivot by policymakers and others to what has become the predictable conversation about limiting access to the kinds of weapons um, and ammunition or uh, magazines used in these types of shootings. And because uh, Mr. Ramos posted pictures of the guns that he bought on his 18th birthday on his Instagram account, we're we're pretty confident we know what the guns look like that he used yesterday. And I just want to say this, like, don't, don't be angry that policymakers are looking for policy answers. Like, what would you have them do? They're policymakers. So they're going to look for policy answers. And it's not a bad conversation to have. We have a problem with gun violence in America. To deny that is just foolishness. Car accidents used to be the leading cause of death in America for children for like forever since the advent of the car. In 2020, guess what replaced car accidents? Guess what surpassed car accidents as the leading cause of death of children in America? Firearms. There there were a staggering 45,222 firearm-related deaths in the United States in 2020. So to say or to deny that we have a gun violence problem in America, it's just foolishness. We do have a gun violence problem in America. But because I'm not a policymaker, I'm not looking for a policy answer to the question. I don't think 
the problem is guns. But I do think it's silly to suggest that guns are not being used by people who have very real problems. So I agree with those who want to have policy conversations about common sense gun laws that would make mass shootings like the one that took place yesterday less likely. But I also think it's terribly naive to believe that passing better laws is going to end gun violence and the American carnage. So we're going to talk next about the root of the problem, the root of the problem. And yes, we're going to talk about rooting out the problem. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge on the Faith Radio Network. We are talking about and uh, around the events in Uvalde, Texas yesterday, which is still an unfolding and developing story and will be for a very long time um, because this is not the kind of thing that any person or family or school or community gets over. You can um, you can just look at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, December 2012, and say to yourself, Um, those families of those then first graders, right, would um, would be going to high school graduations this year, but they won't be going to high school graduations this year, or they won't be going to high school graduations where their children are walking across the stage and making plans to go to college. That's not going to happen. So um, we are talking about gun violence, but I want to talk now about the root of the problem. Because at the root of the problem is evil. And it's evil expressed through human agency as a result of sin. Let me say that again. At the root is the problem of evil expressed through human agency as a result of sin. We have a sin-sick soul. And we are looking, and this is what, when, you know, when the conversation turns, I mean, by policymakers, again, they're policymakers, they're going to look for policy answers. That is what they do. But when that happens, they're basically looking for a balm in Gilead. We have a sin-sick soul, and we're looking for a balm in Gilead. Now, if you haven't read Jeremiah lately and you're relying for your theology related to a balm in Gilead upon a song, um, then let me brief you in here. There is no balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. None. It doesn't exist. There is no balm in Gilead. That's what the prophet Jeremiah says. I mean, I know the song says otherwise, but the Bible says there is no. No balm in Gilead. In the same way that the psalmist says, there's no help coming from those hills where you might raise your eyes. Your help comes from the Lord. No balm is coming from the machinations of the government. No law is going to be passed that's going to heal the sin-sick soul of America. The healing of the sin-sick soul 
is the work of the great physician and him alone, and his name is Jesus. There's no balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole today. There's just Jesus. There's no balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul of America today. There's just Jesus. Only Christ, our only hope in life and in death, not by any balm of man. We're not going to craft, achieve, nor implement political solutions to the problems arising from a sin-sick soul. I'll say that again. The law won't answer the problem. I mean, if you want any evidence of that, just look at the, the effort to bring people under the law and by that heal the sin-sick problem of humanity. Like, hello, that is the entirety of the Old Testament. At the root is the problem of evil expressed through human agency as a result of sin. Guns are the weapon in the hand, but depravity is the problem of the heart. We have, as Paul observes in Romans 1, exchanged the truth about God for lies. We've perverted and subverted God's ordering of family life. We've eschewed God's design for raising children. We've educated our kids to believe that people are nothing more than an accident at the intersection of time and chemistry and chance. We have filled the environment with the aroma of death and left them largely alone to raise themselves. It's just plain foolishness to then be surprised that these things keep happening. This is what happens. This is precisely what we should expect to happen as a result of who we have become. So when you hear people ask, why does this keep happening? Or we must act this time to keep this from ever happening again. You need to gently ask, what do you think is the root cause of this? And if their answer is anything short of sin itself, then your obligation as a Christian is to press in. Remove the layers of debris that's masking the truth of the matter and get to the first cause. Get to the first cause. The first cause is the evil in the human heart. The first cause is our sin problem. The first cause is our sin-sick soul, to which there is but one remedy. No balm in Gilead, no better set of laws, but the grace of God and the transformation of the human person one at a time. The transformation of the human person one at a time. And yes, God help us. God help us grieve. God help us see the truth. God help us be people of light. God help us comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. God help us. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. So how do we overcome evil with good? 
Well, or how do we overcome evil? With good. Don't be overcome by evil. That's uh, from Romans 12, verse 21. Don't be overcome by evil. There is evil. And it is manifest through human agency because of sin. But Paul says, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So what is good? What is good? Maybe we need to return and reread the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1 and remind ourselves that God calls his creation good prior to the fall, prior to the entry of sin into the world, prior to the soul sickness that we now suffer in sin. There is goodness. And that goodness is being restored, being redeemed in Christ Jesus, and will one day be fully restored when the kingdom of our God becomes the kingdom of this world. Today's not yet that day, but today is the day that we get to be the luminaries of that. We get to be the human signposts pointing beyond the reality of sin, sickness, and death, and destruction toward a kingdom of light, and love, and hope, and good, and godliness, and beauty forever and ever. Amen? That's the kingdom of which I am an ambassador. That's the kingdom to which I point today. That's the hope to which I cling. So let us not be overcome by evil. Let us overcome evil with good. Next up, Jim, Jim Dennison's going to join us from the Dennison Forum. My guess is we are going to open by addressing briefly the shooting in Texas. But we have other things to talk about as well. Um, and so let's bring the mind of Christ to bear on the issues of the day with our friend Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining us again this morning, our friend Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. You can um, read lots of wonderful content and listen to some great podcasts and other resources at denisonforum.org. Um, Jim, welcome back. Carmen, glad to be on with you today. How are you? Well, I'm um, uh, as you. Uh, I am. I am sober. Um, I'm speaking at a slower pace today than normal. Um, we have been talking here for the last uh, the last half hour about um, the reality of evil and the sin sick soul of America, um, and that although policymakers, you know, they look they look to policies to answer questions, we know that um, you know ultimately the problem of sin is not answered by better laws. Like the law never n- never finds itself sufficient to the task. It never it never has and it never will. So I'm wondering, what are your reflections um, about what has taken place and is going on in Uvalde, Texas, um, you know, uh, not only as a Christian and, a, and a, an American, but as a Texan yourself? 
In fact, I was not in that area very long ago. And Janet and I were probably within 30 miles of Uvalde when we were on a recent trip down that way. And it just brings it home to all of us to understand this could have been any school, any place in the country. And you're so right, Carmen. At the end of the day, the first reaction is to think in terms of legal kind of responses or um, look toward governance and things such as that. And that's, I think, our desire to try to gain some control of this. It's our desire to try to prevent this in the future because we know if it happened to them, it could happen to us. Many, many years ago, in the first church I pastored, we lost a 17-year-old son who had drowned. He had gone with his girlfriend and their family to Page Lake in Arizona, ate lunch, and then drowned. A year later, his parents were still blaming themselves. They were still saying, we should have gone with him. We should have made sure he hadn't eaten lunch. We should have made sure there were lifeguards. And eventually it dawned on me, the reason they were doing that was they had two other children. And if they ever admitted they couldn't have stopped their first son's death, they'd have to admit they couldn't stop their other children's death. There's a control thing here that's just part of our desire to feel that in some way we can keep this from happening, when at the end of the day, do all that we can, of course, do every step, take every step that makes sense to do in this context, but at the end of the day, this is sin, we are sinful fallen people, and our first thoughts need to be for the survivors, for the families, for those that are ministering to them, our first thoughts need to be to pray and to seek God's grace and strength and help in such times as this. Amen. Amen. Um, so much going on uh, in, in the country and in the world. Um, let's talk about the Southern Baptist Convention. You have described it uh, or asked the question, is this the SBC apocalypse? Maybe I'll just ask it of you that way. Um, is this report about sexual abuse and um, and an ongoing effort over a number of years to keep people from being held accountable for sexual abuse in the church. Is this the SBC apocalypse? It could be. Russell Moore, who leads the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today, he was a former Southern Baptist Convention agency leader, is the person that used that specific title, calling it the Southern Baptist Apocalypse, after the report came out on Sunday. There's a thing we need to understand about Southern Baptists that may help us to understand this a little better and applies to people whether they're Baptist or not. Baptists are organized around autonomous local churches. The denomination doesn't control the church. They don't own the property. They don't name the clergy, that sort of thing. So Southern Baptists relate to each other in a very voluntary fashion through something called the cooperative program. If they ever decide that the leaders of the SBC, the so-called executive committee, can't be trusted, can't be trusted with their funds, can't be trusted to do the, to do the right thing, then that cooperation melts. The very thing that holds Southern Baptist Convention together is in question. So what the messengers do when they meet in Anaheim in June, how they respond to this report could be that fork in the road. If we respond, and I'm a Southern Baptist myself, if we respond appropriately, if we take the steps that are outlined in the report, if we're proactive about this, this doesn't have to be that apocalypse. If we don't, if we don't take the most proactive steps that we can, this could be the beginning of the end of the kind of cooperation that has made the SBC what it is. So one of the um, one of the recommendations in the report is to you know make make the list public. Um, there is apparently a list of people who have been credibly accused of abuse um, within the Southern Baptist Convention. And one of the uh, recommendations is that that list be made public. I'm, I'm a person who takes a deep breath um, about that, um, wanting very much for people to be held to account, but also um, just recognizing the, the tenor of the time in which we live. Um, and what that might result in, in terms of um, 
some people's lives and livelihoods. And I, I just I just lift that up as a uh, point of interest and concern. Like, how do we weigh um, the the need to absolutely um, hold people accountable and hold the denomination accountable for its its role? But then also recognize the the danger we put the very physical danger. I think we put people in when we make their names public. That's the balance and the challenge. The executive committee met in session earlier this week in response to the report and did state that they will do what they can to make those names public if they can. But exactly what you're saying are the issues that are behind all of this. First of all, are they credibly accused? Second of all, is there evidence beyond the credibility of the accuser that causes us to believe that, in fact, there is credibility behind this? This isn't just those that have been legally convicted. What's being asked here is if a person has been accused on some level, the world needs to know that. Well, I remember in the day the Billy Graham rule that he would never be in private with a woman who wasn't his wife because she could accuse him of something and that would be headline news the next day. I'm told that if he was on an elevator by himself and a woman stepped on the elevator, he would get off because he and his advisors knew she could tear her dress and then accuse him of something and that would be headline news. So that's the other side. You could see how the enemy would use unfair accusations, kind of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, in order to undermine the authority and the credibility of people that are serving the gospel. And so there's a balance here. On the one side, absolutely, we should be held to account. All of us should be. And the thing that's behind this needs to be attempted as best it can be, and that is to keep abusers from abusing again to keep people that have abused in one church from that church not making it public and then them going to the next church and doing it again. That's what's behind this. But as you say, it's very complex. And we want to make certain that only those who have been credibly accused are part of this conversation, and that's difficult sometimes to define. All right, Jim. Um, and again, we're talking with Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. Tons of great resources that you should be making use of at dennisonforum.org. Um, I want to talk with you about two what I view as related topics. One, the U.S. birth rate is actually up for the first time since 2014, and we have a baby formula crisis. So can we take those um, topics together? Certainly. And you're right. They do absolutely go together. I am a father and a grandfather. In fact, I have four perfect grandchildren. I don't know if I've made that clear in the past, but inherited original sin has skipped them, Carmen. I didn't know that was possible theologically, but I think their fathers made up for it somehow along the way. I'm not entirely sure about all that, but nonetheless, it is good news that the U.S. birth rate has risen for the first time since 2014. A lot of people may not know this. Where You hear a lot about the great replacement theory and all the heresy inside all of that. There is a thing called the replacement rate which says that if a culture doesn't replace itself by, bir- by virtue of its birth rate, over time that culture begins to decline. You're seeing that in Western Europe. You're seeing that in parts of America as well. It's about 2.2, depending on the sociology that stereotypically needs to happen. We have been below that on a variety of levels in America. And so for the first time since 2014, we are seeing an increasing birth rate, typically for good reasons. We're hearing that there's better prenatal care that's happening. We're understanding that cesarean delivery rates are being more effective and the medical care that is there is happening in ways that we can be more grateful for. So there's some good factors behind all of that. So now we need to feed these children, don't we? And that gets Mm -hmm. you over to um, to the shortage, the crisis, actually, relative to infant formula. People listening to this conversation may think, well, that really shouldn't affect very many people, but it affects an enormous number of parents. If they're adoptive parents, if their children have medical needs, uh, 
If there are issues relative to allergies, there are a variety of issues for which this formula crisis is absolutely a crisis for families across the culture. And it's something we need to be doing better about on a variety of levels. Well, how can we do better? Like, I I think that one of the conversations that gets raised in relationship to baby formula, not everybody understands why so many um, families rely on formula today. I think there's a lot of people that don't know that there's a difference in infant formula and Mm -hmm. formula that you feed to older babies. I'm not sure that everybody understands that there's a lot of women who cannot, for one reason or another, breastfeed. I think people fail to account for all of the babies in foster care or those babies who, um, you know, as as very early young infants have been adopted, obviously their moms, um, their adoptive moms are not in a position to breastfeed. Um, children have all uh, any number of um, uh, allergies and um, and reasons that they can't process uh, what we would imagine they should be able to process, like on and on and on. I hear quick um, reaction, Jim, from people who just think that the solution here um, is that everybody should be breastfeeding their babies. But Everybody can't breastfeed their babies for one reason or another. Baby formula is actually like with us. Um, And yet I read that the CDC has actually been on a push to increase um, breastfeeding in the culture in terms of the percentage of people who rely on um, baby formula. I found that an interesting part of this conversation. And it is to the degree that it's a cultural issue to the degree that it's a medical issue, that it's a biological issue, a physiological issue, then obviously this is a category mistake. It's like asking how much does color weigh or what color is three, you know, to (laughs) ask people to breastfeed who can't breastfeed or babies that have been adopted, as you say, or in foster care, all this source of issues. We had had the struggle ourselves. Our own two sons had had great difficulty with breastfeeding. I was on air the other day with Chris Brooks, and he's an adoptive father. And they had to depend on uh, baby formula. People sometimes don't understand the degree to which impoverished families have been especially impacted by this. They're very dependent on a government program that provides baby formula at a severe discount. And when this is at shortage, it's an enormous impact there as well. So if the CDC speaking into a cultural issue here, the, the degree to which families could breastfeed and choose not to for whatever reason, then perhaps that's a conversation to have. But if it's a physiological issue, then obviously this is not the right solution to the problem. Yeah, I think the CDC is seeking to address the sociological issue, mm-hmm. um, the, the cultural issue. So, in, in, you know, in that in that place, I, you know, I'm with them. I think that's a good idea. Sure. All right. Um, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, um, we're going to talk about polyamory, which, you know, word of the day, um, you know, lots of love, polyamory. Um, but I'm also going to ask Jim, he doesn't know this yet, yet but um, about something that was said yesterday at the World Economic Forum in Davos and a plan by the World Health Organization to, um, to make the response to pandemics something that they are universally responsible for, taking away the rights of nations to respond on their own. Yep, all of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Jim Dennison from the Dennison Forum. Posted at the Dennison Forum is one of his daily articles, this one on polyamorous weddings and the claim that affairs can strengthen a marriage. Jim, this seems like a cultural uh, conversation Christians should be equipped to have. 
It really should, because this is absolutely the next stage in all of this. Back when the Obergefell decision was handed down in 2015, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts said the language that we use to defend same-sex marriage is exactly the language that would and could be used to defend what he called plural marriage or polygamous relationships or sometimes called polyamorous, many loves relationships. And that's exactly what's happening now. A number of municipalities are now granting civil rights to those that are engaged in polygamous relationships, polygamous marriages, they would call. As the article points out, there's now a movement to try to find ways to have weddings and celebrate such relationships and covenants of one sort or another. It's been estimated that there are 50 to 100,000 Muslim families that are polygamous in America. As you know, a Muslim man can marry up to four wives, according to Quranic tradition. So he'll marry the first wife legally and the next three in a civil ceremony at the mosque or the, or the Islamic center, they're not legal marriages, but they're practical marriages. So the argument is, what right do we have to discriminate against Islam? If we can't tell you what gender to marry, how can we, how can we tell you what number to marry? So that's absolutely a movement that's happening right now. It's an ongoing trend, exactly as Chief Justice Roberts uh, predicted that it would be. And the thing that really impressed me in a bad way about the Washington Post article that I'm discussing here is the degree to which they're endorsing this. They're absolutely normalizing this. They're simply reporting on ways to celebrate these relationships with not one word of question about the morality behind such a relationship. Mm. I, I mean, the, yeah, it's such brokenness. I mean, I think that it's it, it's such brokenness. I mean, if we as Christians um, maybe can do one can do one thing positive in the culture, it would be to redeem marriage. I mean, we like we could live in redemptive marriages. We could we could broadcast the advantages of living as redeemed people in redeemed relationships. Um, and yeah, and and I, I mean, marriage seems like one place where Christians could have a winsome witness. That should be that place because marriage was invented by God. It was His Amen. idea. He's the one that blesses it. He's the one that shows us how it best can be lived. It's a gift that he intends for us, and it's a gift that we ought to steward by our own example and then by the way that we all call other people into the same kind of um, covenant that God intends for us. One of the tragedies inside this is the degree to which so many of us who follow Christ have not done that very well. The degree to which we have not demonstrated what it is to be living in covenant relationships ourselves. When you look at adultery rates and pornography issues and all that is inside that, the degree to which we have been pretty silent on the no-fault divorce movement since the early 1960s. In fact, it's been argued that that really was the beginning of the end relative to what we think of as Judeo-Christian morality, is when we were silent on no-fault divorce back in the 60s. And so if we will, first of all, say, I'm going to draw the circle around me, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to help me, help everything inside that circle be right with God. Father, help me be the husband I can be. Help our marriage be the marriage it can be. Holy Spirit, encourage me, empower me, strengthen me, and help me to be an example to others. Then use my influence in the culture to demonstrate this in a way and in a message that can be proactive. That's the difference you and I can make in response to this right now. We ought not be surprised when lost people act like lost people. We did the same thing. We need to say, there but for the grass of God go I, and we need to go forward in the Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit to help us be the change we wish to see. All right, Jim, I have two um, surprise headlines for you, um, because I I like 
you know, real conversations where you and I just get to reflect on the headlines of the day, um, mm-hmm. even when those are fresh. So here's one from yesterday, the World Economic Forum. Um, you will recognize the name George Soros. He is mm-hmm. 91 years old, Hungarian-born billionaire. Um, when I say his name, people probably have a visceral reaction depending on their worldview. Um, but he delivered a message uh, on Tuesday at the 2022 World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, in which he talked about uh, the civilization may not survive uh, and the reasons that civilization may not survive and um, pointed directly to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as potentially marking the start of not only a third world war, but um, but sort of the the point from which there would be no return in terms of um, civilization as we know it, meaningful global institutions um, and our ability in terms of all of humanity to fight pandemics and climate change and avoid nuclear war. So um, when we think of civilization and the survival of civilization, when we hear language like that, um, what are some of the things as Christians we should be thinking about? First of all, thank you. And I'm seeing his address here. I've been following it as well. And he makes points that really do resonate. You can understand why this is something that's gaining so much attention, not not just by virtue of his personal wealth and leverage, but the concerns so many have as regards climate change, as regards pandemics in the future, our inability apparently to marshal some kind of coordinated response to all of that. When you think about civilization in the sense of humanity's ability to advance itself, we've always been in jeopardy. From, the, from Adam and Eve, from Cain and Abel to the future. If we don't come back to understanding that we are creatures who depend on a creator, if we don't understand that what we think of as civilization depends entirely on the one who created us and who alone can guide us effectively, then civilization as we understand it, as we seek to guide it, to preserve it, to empower it, to strengthen it, to use it, is in jeopardy from the fall to today. You see these nations rise and fall. You see empires rise and fall. The typical, I understand, uh, lifespan of an empire is around 250 to 300 years. And think about America in those terms. Uh, I saw the other day someone asking, okay, name this superpower, the world's greatest military power, the world's greatest economic power, the world's greatest educational power, the world's greatest uh, global power. And the answer is Great Britain in 1900. Mm. We understand that when we think of civilization in our terms as dependent on us, then that's the beginning of the end. Once we make that decision, Soros is simply speaking of the symptoms of the condition. The root of the condition is the will to power, as Nietzsche said. It's Genesis 3, the desire to be our own God. When we make that decision, that's when we build the house on sand. That's when the storms come, the rain falls, the wind blows and beats against that house, and it falls because it has no foundation. So see, that's so good. I'm so glad I asked. All right. And then, um, well, we don't really have time to unpack this proposed pandemic treaty that uh, the World Health Organization um, is seeking to launch. But maybe we can circle back around to that the next time we talk, because I think that whenever um, we have an organization that imagines it's going to create some global system of anything, Christians like go on high alert. And so, Um, Maybe we could circle back around to that the next time we have opportunity to talk. Absolutely. And we should be on high alert. You're exactly right. This is a grave concern, something we should all be following. 
Jim, as always, um, it delights my heart to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. You guys can find Jim Dennison at denisonforum.org. If you haven't read it yet, please grab a copy of The Coming Tsunami. It's going to help you not only see what's on the horizon, but prepare for it as a Christian. Jim, as always, thank you so much. Such an honor for me. God bless, Carmen. Thanks so much. Likewise. We'll be right back. So I'm wondering what um, what songs your soul turns to, like in what direction does your soul turn when you confront headlines like the ones we woke up to today out of Uvalde, Texas? Um, like I think of, you know, my soul having a song to sing or a life song, and it's generally pretty peppy, like, you know, have a choose a pretty peppy life song, right? Like, you know. Um, but on days like this, what what songs does your soul turn to? And I turn to the Psalter. I turn to the Psalms themselves, um, recognizing that the Psalms, you know, are the hymn book of the first temple, second temple period, would have been the hymn book of Jesus. And certainly were the songs on his heart. And so um, what does it sound like to lift up the Psalms today, particularly the Psalms of Lament, as, as our life song? Um, and what other songs does your soul sing on days like today? I was uh, listening earlier this morning to Rend Collective's Weep With Me and thought, that's a good, that's a good song for today. What, uh, what songs is your soul singing today? And where are you in the word? Um, our only hope in life and in death. Thank you so much for this hour together. Looking forward to spending another hour with you coming up next. You're listening to Mornings. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.